Hello, and welcome to Here's Where It Went Wrong, where every week we ask one of our favorite comedians to pick one of their favorite topics, and then together we trace its entire history to find out exactly what ruined it. I'm joined, as always, by Wen Powers. Wen, what are we talking about this week? Andrew, this week we are talking about grunge with Adam Cousins. Ah, Adam Cousins is, he's so good. I'm so glad. I'm in a, I'm in a group chat with him on Twitter, and uh, that's how we, we met. And yeah. it, it was actually nice to have a face-to-face conversation, uh, face to Zoom, whatever you want to fucking call it. Absolutely. Adam has, I mean, Adam has written for MTV for SNL. Uh, he also has an hour special uh, on Drybar called Anyway, Here's Adam Cousins. That's out right now that you should go check out. It was so much fun to talk to. I was so glad we got to have him on. Oh, it's so fun. We're going to get into a lot here. We're going to get into to Pearl Jam. We're gonna. I talk way too much about being in a cover band. The research for this was fun because I got to watch a, like a VH1 documentary on grunge <laughs> And I forgot how much I loved VH1 behind the music documentaries. They were so dramatic and really fun. <laughs> I know I'm advertising a documentary for the topic we're going to talk about right now, <laughs> which might not be good marketing, but it, I did it all the same. Right. Well, guys, listen at the end, you know, listen to us first and then you feel free to go check out the documentary. But yeah, we are, are joined by Adam Cousins talking about grunge. Please stick around and listen. It was so much fun. Yeah, let's get into it. Adam Cousins, thank you so much for joining us. Guys, the magic of podcasting, we talk a little bit before we let you guys in on the conversation. So we do like a clap sync so we can sync up all the audios together. And I've been on Zoom for seven hours today. I've been in <laughs> meetings literally all day, and then I closed one computer, and then I opened up my personal computer to do another Zoom for this podcast. And so I just went through the motions. It was like clap sync on three, and me and Andrew clapped at the same time while Adam, our guest today, just looked at us like, is there choreography? What the fuck are you guys doing? So uh, that's a little uh, insight into what you guys missed by not being behind the scenes. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate you having having me. It was such a fun time. I, I love talking about this subject. I mean, it's near and dear to my heart, if you couldn't tell. Folk fun, but it, it means a lot to me. Thank you so much for letting me come on and talk about it. Absolutely. Of course. Actually, you know what? Let's just kind of dive into it. What what was the subject that you picked today? We're talking about grunge music today. The sound from the Puget Sound in, uh, in the Seattle, Washington music scene of my youth, of the uh, late 80s through early to mid 90s. Grunge music means a lot to me, and uh, I can't wait to talk with you guys. About it. I'm really excited. So you said you're from Seattle? Yeah, I grew up in Seattle, uh, like Seattle proper. West Seattle is the name of the neighborhood that I'm from. And I was raised there. I was born in 1984. So I was really coming of age, like when I was like six years old, when like things are really popping off, which is like, it was around me, but I wasn't, you know, old enough to participate in any of it. I was <laughs> right. Like, right. <laughs> it's I'm like, you know, when, when Kurt died, like just a spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> God, we're getting into this quick. <laughs> I was like 10 years old. You know, I, I would see like, you know, people at like my school, like with like chalk drawings, like memorials. Like it was really something that like my older cousins really embraced a lot. And it, w- it was a scene that was around me. And like when I see like movies or TV or magazines from that time, I get very nostalgic about it while also recognizing that I didn't truly get a chance to experience. Like, it's kind of how my mom, like, related to, like, the hippie movement. Like, she was a kid during that time, but it was really her brothers who were soaking it in. And that's kind of how I feel about grunge. I love that you're from Seattle, which means there's going to be a lot of backstory and, like, how grunge came to be from somebody who was just like... (laughs) Yeah, I was there. Thanks for telling me what it's like 
in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> it is kind of silly because like I, I do tell people just, you know, now that I, I don't live in Seattle anymore. And I'll, I'll mention that I grew up in Seattle in the 90s. And that's a very cool sounding thing to say. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, Seattle in the 90s. Oh, all right. Like, you know, the fashion, the music, like just the whole, like that MTV scene that was up there at the time. And... It, but it is hard because I was like seven. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't seeing, you know, like Mud Honey and Alice in Chains at Showbiz. I was more of a like Lewis and Karen Lewis and Graham's Elephant Show kind of fan at the time. So not the same connection. Well, it was still a scene that, uh, so, I mean, we're obviously going to get into the history too, but this was one that resonated with Seattle for a long. I mean, something that it's still known for today was the origin of the sound and when I know you I mean this was music you played right yeah so for those of you who don't know I was in a cover band yep for 10 years uh me and a bunch of my friends and for some reason from 2008 to 2016 I was in a cover band with all of my with a bunch of my friends from high school and we played way too much grunge <laughs> for a group of teenagers and college students right. in the mid to mid like aughts and like <laughs> teens, like way too much. Like we we're so into playing Pearl Jam. And it's just like, who was this for? And it turned out <laughs> drunks in the city of Memphis liked it. So we kept doing it. <laughs> they were just like, they were like, play better, man. And we we're like, we got you. I will do all of the Eddie Vedder nonsense sounds just for you. <laughs> playing Pearl Jam songs were, were a lot of fun because you just had to know the melody. You did not actually have to learn the full on lyrics to an Eddie Vedder song song you can make your way through it and as long as you hit like the actual word like all you have to do in better man is say better man and the rest of it you can make it through this is incredible so that was me that's my uh, trial by fire with grunge yeah. Uh, just years and years of playing it in Memphis bars. <laughs> well, you say that, and like my favorite band of all time, not from the grunge era, is R.E.M. And early on in their career, back in like their IRS records days, was that they they didn't print lyrics on their records, and Michael Stipe's vocals were pretty much indistinguishable outside of the chorus. And so, and he would like switch it up at different concerts. And I know Eddie did that for like Yellow Lead Better and a couple of the different songs where it's just like he's just he's just whatever sounds good that day. That's the song today. And I, I respect that a lot. You know, like in comedy, I feel like we have a little bit of leeway to be able to like, I'm going to switch around this joke, but songs don't usually get that. So I'm all for it, man. You see, yeah. switch up, switch up the better they're, family. they're not grunge. And guys, please don't say that I believe this was grunge when you're when you're writing comments <laughs> about this show. But I do appreciate Counting Crows in concert because they do not play the album version at any live show. They refuse to play the album versions of their songs. They just have like three to four different mixes of every song and they like trade it out depending on like where they are or how recently they've been playing like a certain mix of a song. So like you'll go to a concert and like you're like waiting for Rain King to play and all of a sudden they're like they're playing Thunder Road by Bruce Springsteen and then they'll go to the chorus of Rain King but they go back to Thunder Road and you're like, what the fuck is this? But it's great. I love it. <laughs> So guys, as Wen said, Counting Crows, classic grunge sound that we are all super familiar with. God damn it, I hate you. I hate you so much. You're one of my best friends and I hate you so much. I know, we're going to edit out the part where he clarified and got everything correct and just have me do my dumbass stuff where I research and did not hear any of the music my entire childhood. What were you listening to? I mean, it, it wasn't good. 
I'm positive it wasn't good. No, I mean, it, it wasn't a big thing for me. It was, I was like, oh, this is dark and moody. I'm just sad now. I'm, <laughs> I don't want to do that. Let me listen to something uh, peppy and upbeat. Something that you could easily hear in a grocery store. <laughs> it, it was it was generally unimpressive is my musical history. So, yeah, I mean, this, this wasn't something I, I experienced too much, except for the fact that it did have a massive impact on the music industry as a whole. I mean, this was something that, you know, a decade later, people were playing in cover bands in Memphis bars inexplicably. <laughs> <laughs> and it was killing. <laughs> well, I would say probably my outside of just like peripherally and like being around, I said that word wrong, but outside of being around like, you know, like my cousins or people in my family like enjoying it, like I would say like my first personal impression to listening intentionally to a grunge song was just due to Weird Al. <laughs> and it's really? very, it smells like Teen <laughs> Spirit. And I'm like, oh, I like that riff. And then I, I sought out the original version. I'm like, oh, I like this band. And, and grunge for me, it's like it's when I first realized how much I personally liked grunge, it was similar to like when I really discovered Bruce Spring singer Tom Petty. And I realized how many of their songs I already knew, but I didn't associate it with them. I'm just like, oh, this is a song that's been in my head since I was six years old, but I didn't know where it came from. And that was probably the way I was with like Pearl Jam, a lot of Nirvana, some Alice in Chains, Soundgarden. Like those were like, you know, the big four. Like those were songs that just were constantly playing during my youth. And I just didn't recognize, (laughs) like I wouldn't have been like, oh, that's Chris Cornell. I'm just like, oh no, that's that's the song that would play way too loud in that Chevy Nova every afternoon when I drive (laughs) by. So, Adam, to clarify, the song Smells Like Nirvana is what got you into Nirvana. Yeah, that peak, peak crunch. (laughs) He really mailed in that title, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was was not of his, like, most creative top of mind work. Where's the food pun, Al? Yeah. I did like the courage of him to do the album, the cover, like when he's like swimming in the pool. Um, like yeah. the baby, because the baby, we should talk about that naked baby for a little while here. Nirvana put a, a nude baby boy on the cover of their album with junk and everything. That was, was courageous. It lets you know exactly what you were going to listen to. Okay, yeah. you're going to listen to, uh, uh, I got nothing. I, I got nothing. I was really hoping a riff would come to me. I was really hoping a fucking riff would come to me in the middle of that setup, and it, it never came. I can't. I can't figure out what the baby, the naked baby, go, isn't he going after a dollar? Yeah. <laughs> it lets you Consumerism. know that this is a new band that is just experiencing commercial success, and they're drowning in it. They're drowning in it. They don't know what to do with it, and they might not survive. And guess what? They did it. It was a sad look at what was to come in the world of Nirvana and that is my riff that is my riff on the cover for that album I feel it was one of those things where it was it was like in in old paintings where they didn't know what to do and they're like fuck it put Jesus in somewhere (laughs) people will get it people will no one's gonna say shit about Jesus being in this painting I feel like the swimming baby was the the equivalent of that just put it out there man no one's gonna say they don't understand this is deep I'm just saying that's a well that's the thing that's a that's a shot that you have to plan to be your album cover, you don't accidentally happen upon the baby drowning in the pool. <laughs> I would hate to think I would hate to think that a baby fell in the pool. Nobody saved that baby. Wait, 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 wait. Get this shot. Get this shot first. Like they have they, they play in the album cover. Don't just say that they 
said, fuck it, let's just use this right. casual <laughs> photo that everyone sees. Like, <laughs> yeah, Andrew, how many drowning babies have you not seen? <laughs> But the more I think about this, you're right. Yeah, the more concerning that is, like, they had to find a baby and then throw a baby in a pool. <laughs> Look, you can find a lot of parents who agree to a lot of things for money. <laughs> yeah, I do like the idea. Of the, so the baby's in the pool, but they can't just snap it. They got to get that dollar. Away. This is like this is pre-Photoshop. So right. it's like the baby's floating. They're like, wait, wait, wait. The, the dollars turned the wrong way. Got away. Got put- away. Oh, it's too. Uh, do, do it again. The <laughs> look, they had to go to the library and look into an encyclopedia for how long can a baby hold their breath. We could just Google that now, but they had to do some major research. There is a lot. I mean, okay, but how good did that album have to be for everyone to just look past this? Yeah. <laughs> and be like, oh, no, you know what? One of the greatest of all time. That was the 90s, Andrew. No one gave a shit about baby safety back then. <laughs> right. They barely had seatbelts. You could throw anything in a pool at that time. They were fine with it. <laughs> yeah, you were sitting in you're sitting in the trunks of cars backwards, looking out the back window with no seatbelts. This was that time, Andrew. So yeah, let's let's get into the time period a bit. Let's get into some of these. Yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah, let's do the history part of our history podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Grunge first appears in the uh, the mid eighties in Washington, particularly Seattle and nearby towns. And it was this consideration of a hybrid of punk rock and heavy metal, largely because it featured the distorted guitar sound used in both genres. Although we get a lot into how poorly defined this sound was and how much it was hated <laughs> by those that were called grunge. But this this possibly contributed to the name. The term had been used to describe bands since the 60s, but it was first used to apply to this style in the Seattle music scene in July 1987 when Bruce Pavitt described Green River's Dry as a Bone EP in a sub-pop record company catalog as gritty vocals, roaring martial amps, ultra-loose grunge that destroyed the morals of a generation. <laughs> Bold stance here. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> destroyed the morals of a generation. Grunge just started. You're blaming them for destroying an entire generation. It's been out for like a year. <laughs> and not only that, but it's not like nationally, like it's not lighting up the charts. This guy went to a show and then blamed <laughs> the entire generation for being fucked up based on what he heard and like what was essentially a bar show. Yeah. Like I'm from Seattle and Green River in the city they're from was not a huge band. <laughs> the thing is, is Pavit uses this statement and his massive marketing campaign because people want to believe it's going to destroy the morals of a generation. They, they're trying to make it this sound. The artists are not. The artists are like, dude, just let us play the music. We've got something to say. And they're like, no, man, you got to destroy the morals of a generation constantly. That's what I said you're doing. So Kurt Cobain actually credited uh, Jonathan Poneman as coining the term. But these two are uh, the co-founders of Sub Pop, the two that, you know, signed the the initial big hits. Uh, they signed Nirvana, Soundgarden, Mudhoney, you know, the biggest players of the time. Yeah. And they worked really hard to present the sound in a certain way. In fact, as Wen said, they're playing bar shows, so they're photographing these shows at specific angles to make it look like there's a massive crowd. There's this hidden scene in Seattle that everyone in Seattle knows about, but nobody in the rest of the world knows about. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, Bruce Pavitt uh, and Jonathan Poneman were both huge music fans that admitted that they can't play or right. sing or <laughs> shit, So, which is why they founded Sub Pop. But also, uh, I mean, the name grunge itself, grunge just means dirt. 
Yeah. Like that's, <laughs> that's what it's it's for sludge or dirt is what grunge is actually like supposed to mean. And like it, it's a good like a lot of artists at the time kind of made fun of it when the term was going around. They thought it was just like, a, you know, oh, yeah, we're playing grunge. They thought it was like a silly thing to call it. But the name caught on because like there is something like dirty about it. It is like it is it's like a heavy metal and like early heavy metal, not right. like streaming heavy metal, but like the sure. early heavy metal sound uh, and with the distortion of the pedals and everything but with like the punk scene of the 80s like a punk mentality with that heavy metal sound and yeah that makes something that sounds gritty sounds a little dirty and also like can apparently destroy the morals of a generation (laughs) from one bar show it seemed at the time so much like you said darker and grittier and dirtier because it was coming out of hair metal it was like the last like huge like scene for lack of a better word and it, that was it was at, by that point in like the late 80s it was very David Lee Roth it was very like yeah <laughs> so like good great yeah, guitar crew kind of <laughs> just right. like yeah great instruments like but more like rat and stuff where it was just like I guess they're dangerous but they they <laughs> but it's a lot of like eyeliner and just dancing around right. and like leg kicks and it just wasn't it wasn't fierce at that point and grunge just really it just brought it down to like depression music <laughs> but it makes sense that it came out of Seattle because no bands were going to Seattle at the time right. like these right. clubs were like the only real music that was coming out there. It wasn't like they had like all these outside influences that were coming in and filling up the venues. Uh, nobody would play shows in the Pacific Northwest at the time. There wasn't a big enough audience to make it worth the trip to go out there. So this whole scene kind of came up because no one's going out there. They have all of these club shows that are the only thing that, that are going on. And it, those club shows kind of evolved and became grunge. It, it, they, they created all these grunge bands that eventually became national headliners yeah. all from this one part of the country making a version of music that doesn't exist anywhere else. It's really, really cool. Yeah, and it probably sounds like sacrilege now to say, like, no one's going to Seattle. Of right. course they were. No, they weren't. It was because, like, Seattle was... It was not what it is now. Uh, This was pre.com, pre any of these companies you've heard of. Portland was not a thing because nowadays, like, it's like, oh, yeah, you go up the coast, you go to L.A., then San Francisco, maybe Sacramento, do a little Portland gig. Like, it's it's a route now. Portland sucked. Like, my grandparents are are from Portland. They would get, like, made fun of on a national level for just being, like, just – a retirement community. So both those towns have evolved so much in like the last 35 years. But like looking back, it's like, no, no one was going there. It, they couldn't make money there. And it was such, if you were a smaller middling band, it would cost so much money to get up there. It was cost prohibitive to make a trip to the Pacific Northwest. So you're correct. What was so interesting about this too, when you start looking at the influence and development is because this was so insulated, it had the same evolution that you actually see in like Darwinian evolution on islands where it's just so immediately influencing everything around it and that the best is thriving. So these bands are learning from all of the bands around them. They see this sound catching on and they start developing it and it's not ripping anybody off. It's just very quickly evolving the sound and realizing that there's something really special here. And because of that, it evolves all of a sudden very quickly and very powerfully with a lot of bands in the area realizing that they can do something unique and special and different from each other too. It's not like all these bands sounded the same, which was part of their complaint too about the term grunge was that, you know, Pearl Jam and Mud Honey sounded different from each other, sounded different than Nirvana. These weren't similar sounds. They all had something unique, but because it couldn't be classified as anything else and there was that 
tie-in. It, it made sense as grunge. Uh, and it, it, yeah, obviously became massive very quickly. Yeah. And one thing that I, I think the three of us um, can relate to from just like starting out in comedy is this was not the most, it later became one, but it was not the most competitive rivalry filled scene. Like they were very supportive of each other right. and they would go to each other's shows and they would hang out and they would watch and learn and give each other notes. And like a lot of them live together. Like there, you can find like books and stories about like these houses just full of all these future rock stars just living together, just sleeping on couches and whatnot. And so there was, it was very supportive and they would, they would in good ways steal from each other. And they would, and they was, it was awesome. Like from what, from all accounts, uh, yeah, the, the way that they were able to cultivate this sound in this scene and these, again, not just one sound, but like all of these different styles of music, it wasn't through, you know, backstabbing right. it later, you know, later became much more competitive once it got more exposure. But like early on, it was for lack of a better word, it's quite pure. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we talk about the type of sound too. One of the things that was interesting here was that it, it was just thinking a lot of it was deliberate as, as, as one said, controlling, making this distortion. But it was also that because this wasn't a big scene, they didn't have a lot of money. Nirvana's first album was made for $606. It was, that's what it was recorded for. And ultimately when you don't have money for production, it's going to have a dirtier sound. You're going to turn the volume up. You're, you're going to find ways to compensate. And yeah, that really became a stylistic choice after that. I'm not sure how many uh, musicians listens to the show, but I hope it's a bunch. All of them. But if you look at the pedal board for a guitarist that's playing grunge music, you will not see someone who has spent more fucking money on pedals than somebody who fucking loves playing grunge music. They might as well be doing like a kick drum for the, like they're doing more than the, than the drummer doing the kick drum. They're just like kicking and stomping on like making all these different sounds. And like for me, who is like a bad, I'm like a, bad rhythm guitarist and a singer so like i'm watching it like enthralled but at the same time i'm like this makes no sense to me i'm just going to just stand over here and do my thing why does grunge require that pedal board and that much work when originally it was made because they couldn't afford that stuff how why is it requires so much more now you got to remember is like a lot of the sound that that distorted sound and everything was because of you know originally bad equipment or blowing out equipment and things like right. that but it's a good, interesting sound. Like, there's reasons why pedals are made to recreate that sound. It's just, it gives you exactly what you want. You can listen to songs with the pedals and the effects that a pedal board can give you and without. And it's kind of night and day. And it's not just for grunge. It can make a guitar sound a variety of ways. Peter Frampton Live is one of those great albums. And he is making a beautiful use of his pedal board and, like, making all these different sounds with it. But grunge kind of gives you, like, it just... Gives you a lot of variety in the types of pedals you can use and like how distorted and dirty you can make the sound. And it's it, it's good. But like it, it's just funny looking at somebody, uh, any guitarist that's great is going to have a big pedal board. Sure. Uh, but the grunge <laughs> guys are going to definitely lean on those distortions a lot more. And it's it, if, if you ever get a chance to play with a bunch of guys that know how to play grunge, just watch their feet the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's very cool. And yeah, I guess it makes sense, too, that they don't they want the option of good, clean sound. So it's not like, oh, we can just go buy a cheap speaker and hope it works out. They want that control. Before it was just like a oops, like, yeah, I guess this works. I guess this sound is interesting and good. Thank God the speaker blew out this way. And now we're able to control, like, how much of a speaker blowout sound do I want? How much of the distortion do I want? It's not an accident anymore. It, it can be very meticulously planned. And you like doing a sound check, somebody will meticulously 
obviously planned exactly how dirty they want their guitar to be. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I think another interesting aspect of this, too, was Adam had mentioned the contrast to hair bands, and it was that in style, too. But really, in lyrics, hair bands were, at this point, still about excess and partying and thriving. And grunge comes in with lyrics that are dark and nihilistic, and they deal with these issues of social alienation and depression, but often kind of with this ironic sneer towards it, too. And it had this weird uh, position of, of the, I think, what that partly led to its success of those that are uh, the adults that want their pure music saying this isn't real, this isn't relatable, this is personal people, you know, or people complaining about their personal issues. But all the people that get it are saying, no, this is international. This is a social commentary. We're all dealing with this. And the fact that it was so relatable that you had all these people like, no, I'm I'm I am depressed. I am struggling. I don't really need to hear a rock star with 20 million dollars <laughs> talking about his Corvette in every lyric. You know, I, I, I can relate a lot more to uh, these guys that when they wrote these first albums were struggling. Yeah, I, I think it's something that came out of like, I think we have a better understanding now of of what was going on in the world back then, because we were coming out of like, you know, the Reagan eighties and there was just a lot of just like, yeah, USA, we're killing it. Right. (laughs) Just like, 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 not to, you know, get super political, but just like, it wasn't, you know, not everyone was on the same playing field at the time, but there was just like, if, you know, this was, this was pre, you know, everything we have now, pre-social media, pre-whatever. And so it was just the the general narrative is we're killing it. Everyone's happy. Right. And <laughs> not everyone was feeling that. Yeah. And so this gave a voice. It's, it's such a cliche term, but this kind of gave a voice to the voiceless. <laughs> um, and like they, these people who weren't feeling, you know, they didn't want to, they didn't want to jump. jump! <laughs> like they weren't, they, they weren't, or they wanted to jump off a freaking bridge or something. Right. They weren't feeling like, they, they weren't super joyful and ready to run a, just run around with their flags. It was like, it's, I don't know. I got very tangentially there, no, but no, like, it's, I, it's I, I definitely know it what you mean because hair metal is just like, yeah, we're going to stay up in fuck all night. And, you're like, <laughs> and then you have like Pearl Jam coming in and it's just like, um, my wife is lying and saying she loves me and she, just because she can't find someone better than me. And it's just like, fuck. <laughs> I saw a kid get killed in class today. <laughs> Nirvana's over here just like, uh, you, you want to talk about fucked up things? I saw a baby drowning today. <laughs> I just took a fucking picture of it. <laughs> you try to help. It's a really fucked up version of the bystander effect (laughs) someone else will save the baby i just need to get the shot i just kind of want to like say it's interesting because i feel like these small club shows and like those bands getting a big following and then becoming a national act i feel like that doesn't happen really anymore with social media and everything i feel like a lot of bands like blow up i i love going to to club shows kind of growing up i just love the the romantic idea of these shows of just like this community doing their own shows and eventually going down to California and doing shows there and then from California then blowing up and everything. I love that trajectory and that plan. I feel like we don't have it as much anymore. Uh, and it's just it's just a really it's just a really cool trajectory that I don't think happens anymore. And I feel like it's I just wanted really wanted to just say how cool it is that this band playing club shows could eventually uh, make an album for six hundred and six dollars. And then I mean Nirvana went 
platinum. Yeah. Like so many times. <laughs> Let's see, like Nevermind was certified gold two months after its release. It sold 400,000 copies a week by Christmas of that year. It's it's just insane how these albums blew up and how these bands did so fucking well. It's it's just, I don't know. I just, I think it's a cool trajectory that doesn't happen as much anymore of yeah. those club bands that, that blow up. And I just, I really just want to say it's just a cool scene. Yeah, what I think is like really, one thing that's really special about it is that there are the four bands that I feel like most people know. Like there's Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains. And, but then there's so many other bands. Like I kind of joked about like Green River earlier, not being even the biggest band in Seattle. They were really big in Seattle. Like I, you know, they don't have no hits to their name. Right. They're just like a a big band. Um, One of my favorite records is this band, uh, is by uh, Temple of the Dog, uh, which they, it was a spinoff of, there's this band Mother, Mother Love Bone. And when the leader of that band passed away, as we're going to get into in a little bit here, um, yeah. <laughs> um, some of the other members decided to form like a supergroup for like an album. And that that band uh, included like Mike McCready from Pearl Jam, Eddie Vedder, Chris Cornell and a few other people. And it just became like I just loved how everyone was like knew each other. It was just kind of special. In yeah. a way. Right. They were, they, they were the traveling Wilburys of brunch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, there was that. And then also like we were talking about on the depression part of it earlier and how all these people, they were trying to get this, these feelings out that they couldn't articulate. I also want to like briefly touch on these weren't like, despite what we're going to talk about in a few minutes here, these weren't the saddest sacks in the world. Like they, right. they <laughs> knew they were, they were also, they were enjoying their lives for a lot of it. One of the biggest memories I have of this time was in Seattle. There was like a local late night sketch comedy show called almost live. And it was, it's the only show in America that's ever been able to preempt SNL and SNL would actually get pushed to 12 so that this local show could start at 1130. And it was Joel McHale started, on it. Bill Nye, the science guy, started on it. It was just like this local is only Seattle-centric jokes. Comedy Central tried to put a truncated version of it on for a couple of years and did terribly. <laughs> it's only Seattle <laughs> jokes. Um, everyone's joking about, hey, this guy must be from Kent. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they would have grunge like acts come on the show and they would have like there's like a, a Christmas special where they had like Kim Thale and Jerry Cantrell and Mike McCready and like some of these people come on and they would just do characters and they would talk about like what's like the lame list and they would joke about like what's lame this week and they would just be very self-deprecating and they almost were acknowledging that like they they recognize this is kind of a fluke how this has all come together yeah. <laughs> they're very appreciative they love what they do and the fact that they're able to make money at it is just a blessing on top of everything else right. and that's something that's really resonated with me through the years is just I felt like there was a lot of appreciation and potentially unexpected success which led to some downfall yeah before we kind of go into the the downfall it's just I love that I, I just don't think scenes like this exist anymore where it can be I so agree. insular and that it creates an entire genre of music just because your biosmosis picking up from everyone around you, just because the, the the amount of things that are everyone around you
around you is now the entire world. Yeah. Which I don't know. It's 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 interesting. I don't think it can be repeated. And I just I find that super interesting and super fascinating about grunge. I very much agree. And I, I think you're right because it's the the world is so much smaller with connections and, and also, you know, those running labels have kind of found the pattern that they want for success. They want it to be developed in-house. They don't really want just, you know, finding that place they can pluck from obscurity anymore. They want it developed, which is, you know, what what grunge in the beginning managed to avoid. They managed to keep that originality, which is why I, I think it did thrive so much. And yeah, unfortunately, not something we see very much anymore. So yeah, Adam, now it's all up to you. Where did it go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I've got. A, I, I've thought about this question a lot. We've been we've been planning to do this show for a few weeks now, for yeah. and so I, yes. um, peek behind the curtain. And so I thought about it a few times. One answer I had was I was going to like clown on like Stone Temple Pilots and Creed and just being like all these bands who like wanted to have that sound but weren't really pure about it. And then another version was you know just all the deaths uh, of, yeah. of like the the band. And then another was going to be it. Nothing went wrong, and it just kind of. Ran its natural progression, and I think I'm gonna I'm gonna split between the natural progression and the deaths of originally like Lynn Staley and Kurt Cobain. I don't know how much longer it would have gone anyway. Like I've, I've joked in the past that I'm glad. I'm not glad Kurt's dead, but um, <laughs> if he hadn't died, he would probably be doing, you know, covers of Islands in the Stream with Miley Cyrus or something like it. It was he left on top, which not many people can say. And it's not something that you should <laughs> aspire to do. Right. <laughs> um, and I hope no one's taken any lessons from him in that regard. But it had a small shelf life. And I think that's all it needed to have. Like Pearl Jam is still out there like they're still they had a tour scheduled until you know the coronavirus got it canceled i liked their last album i think they still make really good music just quick pearl jam tangent they came to wrigley field which is not far from my apartment a few years ago and my cousin and her husband were coming up and they're going to stay with us and they're going to go to the concert and she was just like hey can you grab one of these posters that they're selling day before and i was like great so i go i stand in a line for four hours I stand live for four hours for this poster. I buy it for $20. Guess how much this poster is worth? Like, just to give you the idea of how big of an act Pearl Jam still is. I don't want to overguess because that is such a bummer. I'm going to guess $150. I'm going to say $25. That's good. We got something. We got a balance here. <laughs> $550. And this wasn't Jeez. signed by Pearl Jam. Right. This wasn't like the whole band didn't come out and write their names on it. This is just <laughs> a poster for Pearl Jam at Wrigley Field in a picture of like the train. And that right. was it. And it went in value from $20 to $550 in the span of months. Like that wow. is how big of a deal Pearl Jam still is but i will say grunge like i do agree that grunge did run its course but its fans its fans are there yeah <laughs> yeah and they and it's it's i mean a lot of music is like this so this is not specific to grunge but its fans were more or less the age of the band at the time all of these bands so yeah. when pearl jam was you know 22 23 most of their fans were 22 23 so now they have a lot of fans in their mid to late 40s early 50s who are there that's that's an age that can still go to a show like they can yeah. still go out to a concert and that's why 
like I I loved Chris Cornell. Like I think he'd be one of my favorite vocalists of all time. Um, I loved him in Audio Slave. I loved him in Soundgarden. Uh, his solo stuff is great. And you know, and we just lost him a few years ago too. It's like there's Eddie's the last one of that generation of the high profile grunge names who is is still going and his voice is great i just watched a a comp the other night of him of all the different uh, state like rafter climbs he used to do because that used to be like his oh, big yeah. thing of like he he would just climb scaffolding around stages and just hang <laughs> <laughs> and he i think his last one was, was like 2018 or something but he's just swore them off but they've they've still been touring they put out new music I don't know when the last real hit they had outside of Seattle was, um, but you know we would still play their music in the Pacific Northwest up until when I left. But they would they they're just a band that it's not grunge anymore. It's just I guess it would just be traditional rock and roll at this point. But yeah, I'm I'm glad they're still doing it, and I'm glad they're not trying to work under the grunge moniker because like I I think that had I just read a, an article earlier today in prep for this where it says grunge came in. I think it said it came in like a limo crash and went out with a shotgun blast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, but yeah, the other the other part of it would be definitely uh, the death of Kurt Cobain in '94. He was not the first person to make grunge. Uh, some would say he was not, you know, the most ingrained into the scene of Seattle, but he was definitely the, the poster boy for grunge on a, a national worldwide level. And when he took his life, if you believe that, in 94, that was definitely kind of a, a wake up call for that generation and kind of a, a closing bell um, as to that era of grunge. I mean, yeah, it, w- it was Nevermind that brought mainstream attention nationally and internationally. This was the one that launched it. And I think for a lot of the artists at the time, they had this purity of sound. They had this thing that they created. And once it got, it launched so big, all of a sudden bands were being brought in to say they were from Seattle. Uh, they were trying to replicate the sound. And then these, you know, these were, were knockoffs. And the idea of creating something you love, finally getting it in front of tens of millions of people and having it being corrupted got to be hard to take. Uh, and, and I think it did very drastically change the sound because not only do you have all these bands that are coming in that that don't have uh, this purity of force behind it, but you have bands now that are frustrated with it, that you have bands, you know, writing lyrics about what has happened here. Cobain even saying uh, in Serve the Servants, teenage angst has paid off well, now I'm bored and old, which, you know, isn't long after his his massive rise to success. Because a lot of the people wanted, they just wanted to make music and that suddenly became very hard to do. Not that, you know, no one complains about getting millions of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> no, he had a song called Radio Friendly Unit Shift. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, this was a massive shift in the, in the sound. And also, uh, as we talked about, these these artists didn't want to be associated with that. Cobain said he hated the term grunge. Ben Shepard from Soundgarden said not only hates it, he's, he's being associated with it. Accounts from this time period say none of the actual musicians referred to themselves as this. They saw themselves as, as rock and roll artists. And and I, I think the fact that there was this thing that they all understood. They they didn't need a word for this. They knew what it was. But the world wanted to put it in a box. And I think that became very hard and very quickly shifted the sound.
sound is suddenly they're bringing in artists to pretend to do the sound instead of, you know, finding more of the best that actually understand it. Well, and I saw on Instagram the other day, I shared this with Andrew. I'll hold it up to uh, for Wentz here. Right. Is I found this old Kmart ad that was like, get into grunge. (laughs) (laughs) First of all, it's just this shirtless dude um, with just long hair. Uh, And then it's just got grunge clothes, which is just like one of the girls, by the way, in this ad, she is dressed like Blossom. She has the exact same yeah. outfit Blossom would have. Blossom, yeah. yeah. That is the exact outfit Blossom would wear. Right. Yeah, just a bandana. Some some Doc Martens were a big thing. Yeah, I don't know what, how would you describe that look? Just stripes. It's, yeah. <laughs> stripes and floral patterns. It's the thing where like the entire sound came from, we're all bands that hang out with each other in this very specific part of the Northwest. And we do this because no other bands play here. We're not like taking in other shows and influences other than each other you can't just then like hand that album to like someone from you know california or you know you know someone down down south or something like that and just be like do this sound the sound was a natural thing that happened and they were singing about problems that they currently had and when you give those people millions of dollars and then like what kurt cobain said he's now old he's not doesn't have teenage angst yeah it's very it's gonna be hard to believe them singing about you know their girlfriend that you know is liking the other band and shit right. like that. That's, that's not your problem anymore. Right. Your problem isn't that you're like a sad kid anymore. You're you would still be sad, sure. but the reasons for it aren't going to be as relatable as when you were an unknown band in Portland. I had a buddy at the time in the early '90s who was I met him later in life, but in the early '90s he had a band out in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and it was like him and like you know, a traditional like four piece band, but then they also had like three horns in it and they were really, if they would have toughed it out, they could have been like a precursor to like Scott. Um, I was going to say, they, yeah, the first Scott. <laughs> but they, everyone look them up every time. They call Black Happy. They were fun. Um, and they came, they were not too far from Seattle and they went over to Seattle to play gigs and they were like, you got to lose the horns. Like this is where you need to just be a four piece. Your lyrics aren't maybe a little darker, but like it's, uh, yeah, they, no one wanted to hear that. And this was that same time that like the real world was coming to Seattle. I'm trying to think what are some of the other big things that movie singles, which if you ever want to like an actual and I would say actually pure, I mean, up here, but prior to the downfall of grunge, Cameron Crowe made this movie called Singles. And I would say it actually accurately captures that Seattle feel at the time. It has some appearances by a lot of the Grunge acts before they were well known. And I, I was going to include that in the fall of it, uh, in the fall, like what, when things went wrong, because it just it just showed how big and national it was all getting. But I would actually include that as part of the pre-fall where it was, OK, this is building up, but it hasn't tipped over the edge yet. It was just still climbing and building up. Yeah. And also it was Cameron Crowe who was making it, who is I don't think there's a bigger like music lover. Yeah. Right. You know, like master of just like kind of knowing his like, you know, almost famous and all that. Like the guy was a Rolling Stone writer. The guy knows his stuff. Yeah. And he spent a lot of time in Seattle. I don't know if he was from there, but I know he was up there a lot. He put a he put a couple uh um, say anything was in Seattle. Like he, he was around the scene a lot. So, but before this period, there is very little that's based in Seattle in terms of movies. You know, th- this is not something that's that's seen as the draw location. Then in 1993, Sleepless in Seattle comes out. I mean, all of a sudden, it, it is <laughs> uh, it is 
cool to be from, to just be from here <laughs> is suddenly interesting. And that's such a massive shift in tone that, yeah, I mean, this was a hard thing for people to adjust to. Yeah. And we got, uh, we got Griffey. So that was a big yeah. deal. Uh, the Mariners got Griffey. Kemp and Peyton were coming together. It was a big, it was a good time to be in Seattle, but did, uh, didn't last forever. <laughs> yeah. Another big thing that we haven't really acknowledged yet and kind of why I was talking about the purity so much of, of the growing of that scene is that what it was replaced with was the most manufactured kind of acts and talent. People who were on, you know, Mickey Mouse Club or, or right. you know, uh, or Star Search. Uh, people who are plucked from there by record companies and kind of turned into, you know, uh, Sync was not a bunch of buddies that decided to make a band. They were, a, a, you know, an agent called all five of them up and said, <laughs> right. I have an idea for all of you. Yeah. You're going to be the cute one. You're going to be the smart one. And like they planned out roles and everything and they put them out there and they became a hit. Backstreet Boys. They were not a bunch of guys hanging out with each other. that was like, we should make a band. It right. wasn't that. Britney Spears, she was an understudy on on Broadway who was who did Star Search and she had the Mickey Mouse Club credit. We're not we're not allowed to talk negatively about her right now. Just heads up. <laughs> no, I'm, <laughs> not, get, I'm not talking You're going to get destroyed. You're going to get destroyed. <laughs> no. We are entirely no, pro Britney Spears. <laughs> None of them are I'm saying are untalented or have deserved any of the vitriol they they have gotten, you know, since then. But I am saying they were not part of a scene that came up naturally. They were talent managers and agents kind of plucking them out of obscurity and putting them with pre-written songs and saying, go out there, sing this, do this. And it, those became hits. Those became grunge, which was a pure thing that kind of grew out of its own and spread across the world was replaced with manufactured bubblegum pop, which is what it was. Yeah. It's it. You can like, you can like it too. I'm not knocking and saying that it's a, it's a, it's wrong to love that kind of music. Some of that music is great. I love it. It ends up on my, my playlist all the time, but it's a completely, it's a complete shift, a complete 180 from the grunge scene before it of this dark and gritty vibe that was replaced with pre, packaged songs and, and artists that were kind of put together by a marketing team. Yeah. And I think running parallel to that, I, I, cause you know, it's not like everyone who liked Alice in Chains was suddenly going to start listening to 98 degrees. They needed a bridge somewhere. And that's where I feel that these, the post grunge bands like, um, and many of these are great bands. I'm not, I'm not saying these are guys who were formed by A&R or just put together by anybody. These were like good bands, but they, they were in, I'd say like the children of grunge, kind of like a, a Foo Fighters, um, who literally grow was in Nirvana, but, um, then like bands like Bush and like live and puddle of mud, and, you know, matchbox 20. I've even, seen live know. live. They're fun. Yeah. Collective <laughs> soul candle box, you know, like these like bands that like came out, they, maybe they were trying to make a name, but they couldn't break through during grunge or they were fans of grunge or inspired by it, but they didn't live in Seattle. Who knows? But these were bands that like they were, I think they were running in tandem with like the NSYNCs and the Backstreet Boys. And if you didn't want to listen to that whole shift that Wentz just described, you also had this. Was it grunge? No. If you really loved grunge, you would hate it. Yeah. But <laughs> it, um, it was closer. <laughs> and I think people were like, that's good enough. <laughs> 
you're right. And there was this development. And because I think it did develop in the same way where suddenly they're trying to put these bands together. And it's not something I ever fault the artist for, because imagine you have a talent and someone comes up to you and says, I can make you a millionaire by you doing the thing you love. You say, yes, I get it. It's just very rarely do the producers understand what should be done here. They know how to they know how to package it. But you have in 1994, Stone Temple Pilots were simultaneously in the same Rolling Stones voted best new band by the readers and worst new band by the magazine's music critics. It's insane <laughs> to be in the exact same one. And this, you know, d- development, it does start to, to get packaged and they realize the, the, the potential of this. And in, in fact, uh, <laughs> they're releasing easy listening music that they've labeled as grunge light. Didn't, they didn't change the style. They just they just found they could attach the name to it. And yeah, I, I mean, there's it, it was just became very much about the business, not through the bands, but through those that realized the same thing that always happens. Once they realize there's money in it, those that just want to manage it take over and, and the shift becomes drastic. Yeah, it's, I would be really interested like to know your guys' perspective on like where would you consider like a band like Goo Goo Dolls? Or like we said, like Matchbox 20, like it wasn't quite moving into like the the MXPX, like Blink-182, like Eve 6, kind of like punk pop, like, but they were like the Goo Goo Dolls or like there was this whole, like there's the Lil Affair era with like Natalie Merchant. Which was the stuff I listened to, by the way. Me too. I I thought that stuff was fantastic. I I would put those as, as like rock pop. I would put those as rock pop. Yeah, that's it. They also had that acoustic alternative range that they, they seem to hit pretty heavily. Yeah, that's, that doesn't exist anymore either. I mean, I, I love Matchbox 20. I think and and I guess I, I'm going to slightly move this a little bit into in their defense. Just because yeah. I, <laughs> sure. like, sure. I feel like we're talking about evolution here. And like there is some kind of like knee jerk thing of like the get off my lawn kind of thing. When we're talking about this music kind of dying because of the change in taste and culture. When we're saying that these bands took the place of grunge or like swapped out grunge or, or evolved. We're not saying they're bad. No. Uh, <laughs> and I, I think that's a very important thing to notice. I love Matchbox. 20 i've seen live in concert i love the goo goo dolls and a lot of the the stuff that i was saying was pre-packaged bubblegum pop in sync backstreet boys britney spears it's not a knock on the talent of the people doing it it's not a knock on the, the music itself uh it's purely a thing of this is evolved and there is a sadness in it's not done this way anymore. There's yeah. a nostalgia to it. But yeah, it, it, tastes evolve, artists evolve, the things people are, are into, that's going to change. It's not so much that these things killed grunge. It's grunge slowly died off and new things came in. And it's just the evolution of taste and, and culture and pop culture. And Yeah, I mean, it's the same way grunge came in. It, it took over other genres. And this is a you know societal evolution. That, that's nobody's fault for that. But I think, as Adam mentioned a big contribution to this was the drugs in the scene were massive. It also became, a, it was a time period where heroin, especially in the scene, took off, which is just so absurdly dangerous and addictive that it's it's taking bands out left and right, either through through death or through rehab and addiction issues, which is, is obviously one we were incredibly sympathetic towards. And, and it had a, a drastic effect. It, it's when all of a sudden, you know, the, this 
you're losing the artists that you feel are, are behind this sound. Of course, things are going to change. It can't possibly stay the same. These bands have been drastically changed over a very short period of time. It's Things are going to change everywhere very quickly. Yeah, and going back to what you guys were both saying a moment ago, is no one's faulting anyone. Right. <laughs> like Because like you said, there was these bands that were huge and selling millions of records and touring nationally. And then... Overnight, two of them were gone. Yeah. There's money to be made here. And there's money in these there hills. Right. And <laughs> why, why wouldn't... I don't, I don't I'm not faulting anybody. Dude. And again, good music. The last concert I saw in person before everything changed was Goo Goo Dolls and uh, Collective Soul. The moral of the story is... Listen to what you want. Yeah. Let's <laughs> segue into in their defense. <laughs> we're getting yeah. into this very quickly. I already said it. We're good. We're, we're good. We're all right. In their defense right <laughs> no. All right. We're switching to in their defense. Guys, that was the history of grunge. That That is what happened. Where it went wrong was the fact that we lost grunge. It You know, it was nothing that came out of it was bad. The fact that there just isn't grunge in the form anymore is a sad thing, even if there are new things now. But yeah, that does bring us to in their defense now and also 10 minutes ago. Uh, <laughs> so let's let's go to Adam. Adam, what do you have in their defense of the loss of grunge? In their defense, you can't, if you're putting yourself out there, like, and you're making art and you're making music, you cannot be expected to intentionally be poor your whole life. Right. <laughs> like, <that's>, like, <laughs> like, you, <laughs> like, it's like, oh man, there's a, they're selling out. Like, yes. Yeah. Of course I am. Like, I, I hope that they're selling out. I hope that they're <laughs> making money. Like, if you're putting all this time and effort into something, you deserve it. Like, if you fly into Seattle right now, one of the first stores that you'll see is a sub pop store. And you can buy sub pop t shirts, you can buy sub pop posters and all the CDs. You can buy Bleach, all the old Nirvana albums. And people hate that. Because <laughs> it's like, oh, you were supposed to be like the anti-Kaplan. Now you're in Seattle, Tacoma International Airport with the little store. It's like, what do you want? <laughs> what do you want from these people? They're like, the, the people who found it are like in their 70s now. <laughs> they, need, they need to make some money. Like, I don't, so yeah, in their defense, it's like, the sound, yes, music has music has changed. The band, if you listen back to so many of those pivotal albums from that time, like it's it, the, that music. If you put it out today, there isn't a place for it to be on radio. There isn't really a radio in many ways. There's it, it would. I don't know how these bands would have developed in a current ecosystem of music. And so when things weren't perfect or when people got consumed by fame too quickly, who can blame them? It was a different time. They didn't probably have the support systems that we have in place nowadays. And yes, they turned to drugs and alcohol like so many people still do. But I think it's a lot easier to spot the warning signs or at least have better. We can put better people around folks these days, I think. I don't know. I've never reached that level of success. Um, <laughs> but uh, there's going to be a lot of yes men and yes women at every phase of your But in short, in their defense, they were these, these were also an important thing to point out. Everyone we've talked to about for this last hour was probably between the ages of 19 and like 24 to 27 at that Kurt at the end. Yeah. Um, these were not seasoned. They've been like yeah. <laughs> grown people. That's an excellent point. <laughs> right. I mean, these were making kids mistakes for the most part. regularly. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think you're you're absolutely right. And and again, this was this was a weird one because normally in their defenses, someone did 
something bad and we've kind of got to explain what happened there. This is very different. This was more like bad things happened. You know, no one should be blaming the suicide victim for suicide or, or the <laughs> drug addict for, for drug use, especially when you're pushed into this new world as as a kid. I mean, you're right when you're starting at, at you know, 19, 20 years old. So this this is, is not where, where they were at fault. This was a situation they were in. And and again, where it went wrong is for us. For us, is, it's the loss. And, and that's a very disappointing thing. But also, I, <laughs> I've never heard someone complain about music offer a good alternative. It's oh. <laughs> no one's just saying the, the music Music kids listen to today. It's like what? Do you, should it have been Perry Como this entire time? It's, it's music is, is going to evolve. It's going to change. That is not a bad thing. It's going to be a reflection of the time. That's how you get great music. And I get you're disappointed that there isn't more music like the one you grew up with. But maybe it's your nostalgia here. Not that it was in fact the best music of all time. It's that it was music you loved. That's great. There's a new generation that also loves their music. That's okay too. And it's it's you know said they're left, but also there are some great artists out there now. And and we have. A a lot more access to them. I'm, you know, still pissed about the the corporate machine behind it. I think that's a fair thing to, to hate all the time. But there's good stuff coming out constantly, and uh, and yeah, we're we're very sad to have lost what we did. But this is just what happens to music, and I, I don't ever want to complain about that. That's I feel like a good thing for the world. Yeah, and uh, I'll bat clean up here because I I feel like I did a lot of complaining about like oh this is never going to happen again. This is how you know you'll never get like these bar shows and these these club shows happening and creating a new sound because you're isolated from the rest of the world and like you have nothing else to look at but I think there is something to be said about there is now more access to artists that you never would have heard of from those clubs you know if grunge didn't leave Seattle if those guys didn't go out and do those shows in California the world wouldn't have had grunge it would have just stayed this thing in Portland because where, where were they going to send it out right Who was going to listen to <laughs> now now a band can record something and they can throw it up on Spotify and Apple and they we can do this who would have heard us having this conversation? You know, this right. was something that people would do in a bar for fun. And now it's something that people do as like an actual business that, you know, they make more money at it than us most of the time. But this is like a business now. Conversations with yeah. friends about interesting topics right. is now a business. Uh, a band in Memphis, Tennessee can throw something together and put it up on Spotify that people all the way across the world can hear now. There is something really cool about like that evolution's amazing. And it's definitely going to create music that wouldn't have been made before because people in other places of the world can be influenced. I do miss the insular community of clubs and shows and you kind of have that to some degree now but it's never going to be what it was with the internet and, and streaming and everything that it is now but there is something we said like yeah you could say that there's a purity to that but there's also a purity to to our new system where somebody you know in the middle in Russia can be listening to somebody who just threw up something you know from their home in Louisiana and it's just that's that there's an amazingness to that and it's how things evolved and it's how things are going and we can't go back to where it was you can't go home again uh here's where we are now yeah and i think it's i i, I agree with everything both of you guys said i don't have too much to add to it i do think it's very interesting uh, just touching on the idea of you know the live performance part and how i remember like i i'm a pretty big hip-hop fan these days and there i was i can't remember the artist but there was somebody a few years ago who like they had a pretty big hit single and they were invited to perform at like the summer jam in new york and they're like, I've never actually been on stage before. 
I recorded this song and I'm huge. Everyone in the country knows this song, but I've never actually sung it in wow. front of people before. And that was just mind blowing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but it's it's things like, you know, Chance, you know, Chicago, mm-hmm. Chicago artists, but he was just someone who threw his demos up online and would would like, yeah, Chance was performing everything around town, but would he become the star that he is? If you just had to hope that somebody found him where he wherever he was and wherever he was performing as a child. Right. Probably not. Like the, the, <laughs> this evolution of how music is being shared, it does ruin the insular communities, but also it gives a lot of people chances that they never would have had before. And there's something cool about that. Absolutely. Uh, Adam Cousins, thank you so much for coming on. It was a, a pleasure to talk with you. Guys, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe. Give us five stars. It helps so much. We also have a Patreon up, which you can uh, find down in the show notes. And yeah, we're going to be back next week. We hope you'll join us. See you next week, when? Yeah, see you next week. But before you guys leave, remember, here's Adam Cousins is streaming right now. Adam's laughing. We're going to mention it in our intro. I just wanted to <laughs> pop it again. This is our second. This is our second plug for it Adam oh, you're laughing you. but as we said before we're recording the intro at the <laughs> end <laughs> this is your second plug <laughs> absolutely uh, it's so good Adam thank you so much for joining us guys if you enjoyed this please subscribe give us five stars it helps us out so much we also have a Patreon up which you can find a link to down in the show notes uh, we're going to be back next week we hope you'll join us I'll see you next week when bye bye bye